Am I controlling the slides or are you controlling this? Okay, let's go. Let's see what happens next. There we go. Great. So, uh, as all telehealth uh, lectures must start, we'll We'll describe a definition for telehealth because it's a changing beast. And then we'll discuss the uh, dimensions of telehealth effectiveness, uh, clinical outcomes, patient and provider experience, and of course, cost, of course, cost utilization and increasingly equity. I'll illustrate with three projects our own telehealth impact study, uh, two recent publications from the AHRQ and their effective health care program on antenatal care and RPM, and then finish off with a, a large project from the American Medical Association. So this is a definition from uh, the Health Resources Services Administration published recently, and you'll notice it's pretty expansive. Uh, they describe telehealth as technologies that support long-distance clinical health care, patient and professional health-related education, public health, and health administration. And that's much bigger, a bigger scope than what we think of as a traditional say, physician-patient uh, televisit. This is another uh, way to think about digital care. This is the famous hype circle from Gartner, and Gartner often publishes a hype cycle like this for many different industries, and you'll see the numerous different digital technologies and applications that they've rounded up. Uh, and moving over towards the right-hand side, you'll see uh, the, you'll see uh, digital uh, virtual visits and RPM, which is kind of our area of interest right now. And they have survived the innovation trigger, the, uh, the uh, peak of initial ex of, uh, inflated expectations and the trough of delusionment, and are now working to move toward the plateau of productivity. But many other digital technologies uh, have to follow that fate and, and will you know, over these next few years. So what would be an ideal study design for telehealth effectiveness? You'd probably want to compare telehealth to something else, and that's usually what's referred to as usual care or face-to-face -face care in this case. You'd want a large sample, probably larger than your own medical group or your own health system. You'd want diverse populations. You'd want diversity of gender, race, ethnicity, age, say insurance cohorts. And then, of course, you'd want measurable outcomes clinical patient and physician uh, satisfaction uh, and cost for sure. But this is tough stuff. Uh, in the era of COVID, you could imagine it's not, it may not be ethical to randomize patients to telehealth versus face-to-face. -face. If you had to tell your patient that now you have to come into the office uh, for, because to participate in the study, but it could put them at risk in this case for COVID. Um, also, just thinking about the standard dosing of, co of uh, telehealth. If you're doing a heart failure project and you have some patients that are getting, say, one telehealth visit a month, but others that are needing three, how do you just adjust that dose and define that concept of digital, uh, dose of digital care or telehealth? The clinical outcomes of interest may take quite a long time. Certainly mortality or end-stage renal disease progression uh, could take years. And so we're usually using some proxies uh, of clinical outcome measures. 
and then capturing the costs. And whose costs are we measuring anyway? Usually we're finding the easy ones, and those are insurance uh, claims, for example. But in telehealth, we're really interested in the patient's perspective, and a lot of the value accrues to the individual patient who doesn't have to pay for uh, child care, or doesn't have to miss a day of work, doesn't have to pay for parking, and that's difficult to actually measure at scale during a uh, clinical trial. It takes a lot of uh, interview and then reconciliation of that data to, to be able to express it. So we really need a diversity of research designs. We need prospective randomized trials. We need retrospective observational studies. And a lot of the work done now in telehealth in the last two years has been retrospective observational. And we also need qualitative studies in addition to quantitative. So I'll mention our telehealth impact study, which you may have read in, in this August journal. Um, this was a product of the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition, which was stood up in March of 2020. This was a private sector response for the many challenges of COVID across the country. It was organized by Mayo Clinic and MITRE together. We attracted over 1,000 organizations, many healthcare systems, telehealth companies included, uh, along with other life sciences companies, insurers, and other members of the kind of the healthcare community and supply chain. The studies were actually three related to telehealth. One was a very large claims analysis. Second was a provider survey, and the third a patient survey. We had a pretty large and committed volunteer uh, research team from Mayo Clinic and MITRE. Our large data set of claims came from Change Healthcare. The data set covered over 50% of private insurance claims across the country, uh, really deep and wide, covering all 50 states. We had experts from the American Medical Association and the American Telemedicine Association and other organizations devoted to uh, quality. This is a curve you've seen even earlier today. This is from the claims analysis showing that amazing spike and adoption of telehealth in the month of March, April, and May, uh, in the March, those months uh, of the pandemic. And pre-pandemic, as you know, for ambulatory services, telehealth uh, maybe made up 1% to 2% of total claims, but it was 49% in the month of April 2020, and then tapered down into that 20 to 24% range for the rest of that year. In many uh, health systems now, it's ranging from 10 to 30 percent. I'll be interested to hear some of your perspectives on that. Uh, this was a large and pretty representative data set. We had over 12 million telehealth claims in just the month of April. One more view from the claims analysis looking at the clinical diagnoses associated with telehealth visits. You'll see pretty much every clinical topic area saw a, a steep rise in the use of telehealth, but it's uh, behavioral and mental health care that really uh, accelerated tremendously with over 5 million claims in that one month of April. And still mental health and behavioral health services uh, are a leader in innovation for telehealth. This is now a few slides from the patient survey. We surveyed over 1,500 patients in the months of December 2020 and January 2021. And uh, this was patients who had had at least one telehealth visit in the prior year. 
and we asked uh, further sentiment in a number of st statements. And the first was, was the provider thorough? And we got great marks for telehealth. Over 70 to 80% agreed or, or strongly agreed with that concept. The quality of the patient-provider communication was good. Again, very high marks from patients from all age groups. And thirdly, I will continue to use telehealth services into the future. Another uh, pretty ringing endorsement with 60 to 70 percent of patients anticipating that, and really comforting to see that the over 65 group was uh, as much on board as any of the other younger cohorts. I'll move over to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality now. They uh, have a very well-regarded, effective healthcare program. They do uh, systematic reviews of the literature in a number of emerging areas, and they are now working on telehealth as it related to the COVID epidemic. The intermediate outcomes include uh, clinical outcomes as well as communication metrics. Uh, on the uh, final outcomes, they've got, uh, they've got the clinical as well as utilization and uh, quality measures. The first project they, uh, that I'm going to report on is their recently released report just earlier this summer on antenatal care. So the use of telehealth during the pregnancy leading up to birth. And if you're a mom who's given birth, you probably remember the 12 to 14 face-to-face -face visits, which have been standard American College of OBGYN recommended criteria since 1930 and really hasn't changed much. So it's kind of a big deal to change that fundamental uh, tradition. Uh, there are, even pre-pandemic, there was interest in understanding whether fewer visits could work, and they did have some literature from that, but this is the subset that included telehealth. Pretty sparse literature. Two randomized trials, four non-randomized comparative studies, uh, one survey, and five qualitative studies. And in some, they looked at 15 different dimensions of care uh, that, the, that ACOG has uh, de deemed as important and probably sensitive to prenatal care. They found no differences in preterm births or NICU admissions between the moms that received telehealth versus face-to-face -face care. Under satisfaction results, it was mixed, however. One study showed greater satisfaction with telehealth and one greater satisfaction with in-person care. And then on the qualitative studies, telehealth uh, showed good marks for improved access and continuity of care, but there was significant concern raised in, the, in these studies around the risk of hampering the provider-patient relationship and even concerns about hampering safety through telehealth. So uh, quite a bit of reticence in that regard. Also important to point out, there was really insufficient evidence from the research base on really important aspects of care, such as quality of life, mental health, work life, uh, lost work time, and low birth weights and APGAR scores. So the researchers uh, concluded that further research is needed in this important area. Second project from, a from AHRQ relates to remote patient monitoring, or as they term it, the automated entry of patient-generated health data, in this case for chronic conditions. This was published in March of 2021, so most of these studies were pre-pandemic in nature. Pretty uh, large size systematic review, 114 controlled studies using 118 unique devices 
and 26 apps. The, dev dev the devices were uh, pretty standard fare, uh, pedometers, uh, weight scales, oximetry, uh, pulse and blood pressure monitors. They uh, stratified the data according to diff different clinical chronic uh, conditions. They found positive benefit in only a few in coronary disease, heart failure, and asthma. The bar here was for uh, clinical outcomes such as mortality, improvement in quality of life, or improvement in symptom uh, management. And on that reasonably high bar, there was unclear benefit on pretty much all the other conditions, uh, including obesity. None of the studies achieved the uh, clinical outcome of, of at least 5% body weight reduction. Under uh, blood pressure management, there was no benefit on the long-term outcomes such as mortality related to hypertension, but there was some positive improvement in blood pressure control, two points of diastolic and hypertension improvement. And unclear benefits for most of the others. However, uh, for uh, cardiac arrhythmias, there was uh, benefit for time to arrhythmia detection, but no change in, uh, in mortality or symptom control. And unclear benefit among other important conditions like COPD, diabetes prevention, sleep apnea, stroke, and Parkinson's. So a lot more work to be done, and they concluded that it really was an insufficient uh, study size and inadequate focus on clinical outcomes of interest in most of these studies that led to the unclear ratings for them. So they're encouraging um, more studies, larger studies, with uh, a focus on outcomes. And the third project is from the AMA and their digital health research team. They've been doing surveys of physicians for a number of years. They have a consistently given survey on digital care from 2016, 2019, and 2022. About 1,300 physicians, half PCPs, and half specialists around the country. They have a pretty expansive concept of digital care, including televisits and virtual visits, but remote monitoring, uh, clinical decision support, and even consumer access to clinical data are in their uh, large basket of concepts of digital care. This is a graphic uh, trying to describe the drivers of technology adoption. So remember, this is physician survey data. They're asking physicians, when you adopt a digital technology, what are you looking for? And you can read it better than I can from here, but improving patient outcomes is number one, along with improving uh, diagnostic ability um, and, uh, and such. And then the requirements, the features uh, that they want to see in adoption, the number one is integration with the electronic health record, as well as uh, being comparable in uh, care for, uh, comparable to usual care. They want easy use and they want compensation for the time spent with the new technology. So if you have all those elements in your new innovation, you're more likely to achieve adoption. They give this uh, kind of summary scorecard on the different digital technologies. You can see increasing uh, physician interest uh, and adoption for rem remote monitoring over these uh, six years that they surveyed, but still even RPM is at an early phase of adoption, I think, as everyone here knows. So who cares about this research? Who's reading it, and, and what impact does it have? This is a notice of proposed rulemaking from the OCR, 
the Office of Civil Rights, that in August pro uh, proposes a rule that provides that covered entities must not, in the delivery of health programs and activities through telehealth services, discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, or disability. And they cite in the proposed rules some specific research uh, findings from the literature that indicated that telehealth does uh, is hampered with disparities in access based on these important criteria and particularly inaccessibility of certain platforms on uh, deafness, blindness, and other cognitive disabilities. So I'll just summarize there and we can get on to lunch. I just want to remind us all that we're still in the midst of what I consider a great experiment. We're witnessing the rapid transformation of our delivery system and uh, it seems that we're moving toward a full embrace of digital care. Uh, that the evidence is being used and we need uh, to have quality studies so that we can inform new payment methods. It's the responsibility of everyone in the room here to make sure we are studying the effectiveness so that we can reap the benefits for our patients. We want to be sure that you commit to measuring clinical outcomes of interest, satisfaction, equity, and cost, and be sure to publish both your positive and your negative findings. It's critical uh, to do that so that we can all move forward as a community. So thank you, and if we have time, happy to take some questions. Okay. You know, that's a perfect question because the technology is not going to stay still and the marketplace isn't going to stay still. Innovation will continue to happen. So I think careful study design is important. And I think uh, thinking about the needs of the users of the information is key. So obviously most innovation companies are more focused on uh, who they believe their customers are, whether it's an insurance company that they're selling into or maybe direct to consumer to patient data or to physicians or health systems. And each of those audiences may have uh, different perspectives or different sophistication in what they're looking for. Um, uh, but we probably need studies that are impartial and maybe not even driven by industry. It would be nice to have more foundation-sponsored uh, studies or government-sponsored studies so that we can compare, say, technologies across manufacturers. You know, so many of the studies now are from a single innovator company. And, and you, you know, those need to be done, but it's hard to generalize from that. And particularly when a, a specific sensor tool, for example, is used, um, it makes it harder to generalize about that impact of that.
Yeah, it, it's, it's, no one's all that comfortable in publishing their, their negative findings. And so it's tough to do that. It's an, it's an emotional hurdle for the, for the researchers, for sure. And, and if, you're in a, if you're a company uh, trying to put your best foot forward, it's easy to lose sight of the value of that information. Well, I think, um, and, and I, and, you know, this is still an emerging area, and we really, uh, I would say in my particular case, we don't have a plethora of, of innovators coming with their study designs asking for our, our thoughts about it. Almost every company is going, if, if, you know, if, if, for best, if they're going to their local IRB, that's a good first stop. But many studies never even go through the scrutiny of an IRB that they're industry-sponsored, but it's the best information out there at this point. I, I mean, our colleagues at Bioformis have actually actually done a very nice job in rigorous study design, but it takes time and effort. It's, it's, it's reasonably expensive to do that, and, and I'm sure the scientists there uh, want to do good study, but the marketing people say, hey, can we move this forward a little quicker? I'm sure there's dynamic tension you know, even within the innovative company. Um, so it's a challenge, and well, it does require important, you know, research ethics within the team. It requires a rigorous study design that's well thought out. And when you have IRB approval and you go through the IRB um, expectations for change management, that's key because really you, uh, to change, say, in the middle of a study because you observe something that, you know, sometimes it makes sense to make that adjustment because technologies changes or, you're, or there's a challenge with recruitment of what you thought was going to be an easy recruitment cycle. So it's re, you know you can change your study design and even uh, secondary outcomes, uh, but you have to go through the IRB for that. The other thing is um, is uh, declaring your study in clinicaltrials.gov is important. Uh, you do that before you start the study, and that announces to the world that you are doing a study. And that then allows you to publish in top-tier journals, typically. They're going to be looking that you declared what your outcomes were and what your aims were at the beginning. Uh, so that, that's a level of accountability. So, so the highest quality studies will show up in clinicaltrials.gov early. And then declaration of funding sources is always you know, important for conflict of interest declaration. Other questions? So in our telehealth impact study, it was really an observational study. Uh, it wasn't an experimental design. Um, and our goal, you know, in March of 2020 was, wow, things are changing fast. Just describing it is going to be helpful 
because as a physician, you know, I'm working in my own little zone, my own little health system. It's a big health system, but it's still small in the scheme of things. And just knowing, you know, whether 20% uh, uh, telehealth use on our ambulatory side is about right or not, just even knowing where you are in the sea of change is helpful. Um, and what happens once you start an analysis is you realize there's a lot more information in this data set. There's more things I could inquire about. So we've done projects on the same data set in diabetes, in obstetrical care, um, and we now published one on uh, behavioral health challenges, and we looked in that case in rural versus urban uh, uptake, and now we're doing a project on skilled nursing use of telehealth during the pandemic. So there's an almost unending series of good ideas and questions to pursue. Well, on the, as far as the telehealth impact study and our relationship with Change Healthcare, we've been, you know, we've kept a very good working relationship. Um, and uh, with IRB-approved protocols, they're, they continue to be interested in providing data um, for, in our case, for no cost. My, uh, my organization, MITRE, is a, is a .org. We're a federally funded research and development corporation. And so we're always interested in thinking about the needs, in particular, of the federal government um, in this case, you know, CMS, FDA are very interested in understanding these trends um, as for, for technology adoption and, and what's reasonable. I, I read recently that 45% of the telehealth applications have no clinical claims, no clinical trials, or no fighting case clinics. So is there any way to sort out or compare things that are alike? Well, I mean, it's a great question. Like, how do you compare telehealth from three or four different organizations? Well, early in the pandemic, we did have a controlled chaos. As you know, many of us were using face uh, FaceTime right off our phones directly with our patients. We were using personal phones, for example, um, because we had to get the job done. And so people were using what was available. So fortunately, things have <clears throat> evolved as far as the platforms go, and many of them have improved, in particular, the privacy issues that relate to that. But uh, on the medical device side, I think we heard some really nice conversation earlier about the need for standards for uh, technology and data movement. Um, and then th there's this continuous ebb and flow because c consumer technology keeps getting more sophisticated and more potentially effective. Uh, there's, there's this almost huge push of of, of technology options coming forward. And as a physician, I do get those photographs, I do get these images from patients saying, can you help me out with this? And they're sending me citations uh, from, you know, of places that I have to look up. So it's a, it, you know, right at the edge there, there's a lot, there's a lot of swirl. And I always try to apply it for my patients, you know, for the benefit of them in the context that's appropriate. Uh, but it's hard to think about that at scale, and we need institutional uh, methods to do that, as well as enlightened regulatory processes. I'm I'm really happy that you know CMS has continued to be relatively generous with an embrace of this technology um, now, and I think we we as providers and innovators need to realize that we need to take this time to to develop reasonable evidence, and um, that will be good in the long run when you think about the 10-year horizon.
Thank you. And coming from you, that's really important. Uh, I'll mention that we're, we're also doing a, a research project with the FAA, uh, Federal Aviation Administration, to try to think about how telehealth could be used in the certification of pilots, which is obviously a very high bar. And um, But that's a organization that's had a very standardized face-to-face -face methodology for data collection for a long time. And we realize you know, things are evolving. Um, so thinking about the, the use case, the domain, it, and that's very different than some of the other use cases for telehealth, for example. So it all is context specific. Right, and relating to the standards that Maria brought up, uh, the, the concept of standards, in order to develop long-term trust with our patients and with our providers, we need to be setting standards that make sense. We want high-quality data. We want organizations that are committed to standards. And um, there's really no shortcut for the integrity of the data itself. And if we want to apply AI, we know it's not the algorithm. It's the data that makes that insight valuable. So having high quality data and sourcing it and understanding the provenance of it is critical to take this next step of use of high volume of data. Lunch? Wrap it up. <laughs>